0: G'day folks, welcome to another edition of ManaCast where we talk about the intersections of faith, economy, ecology and stuff. ManaCast is the podcast of Managum a ministry in good news economics. My name is Jonathan Cornford, and I'm talking to you as always from the land of the Jar Wurrung people here in Bendigo, Victoria. Today we have the second in a two part talk I gave to the Tier New South Wales Conference in 2016 on living faithfully in the 21st century. In the first talk, I suggested that the first task of living faithfully is to get real about the times in which we live. It's a task of facing up to the bad news. And it's truth. sometimes it feels like there's a lot of bad news. So you'll be happy to know in this talk, I move on to ask what it might look like to begin living out the good news in our times. So let's get into it. This morning we spent a bit of time talking about bad news, so it's only right that we spend this afternoon thinking about good news. Having a clear sight of the brokenness of our times, the question is how do we begin to inhabit the good news of the kingdom of God? I've started to suggest this morning that for our own sakes and for the sake of our witness to the world that we need to be recaptured by the New Testament vision of the body of Christ as that community of people in which God's word to humanity is continuing to take flesh, continuing to be translated into the hurt and the brokenness and the mess of the world, because that's what God does. God comes into our mess and our hurt and our brokenness and brings healing and salvation right into the midst of it. And I've signalled this morning that such a process requires us to let the spirit of Christ transform and reorder our material lives. So this afternoon I want to start to make some suggestions about what that could could look like. And it's really just the beginning of a conversation. We're going to be looking at our overall perceptions of our standard of living, our material standard of living... We're going to be looking at some of the day-to-day practices of consumption and we're going to be thinking about the possibility of having some sort of economic connections with each other. A forewarning. Some of what I'm going to suggest today is, from the perspective of our culture, really a scandal to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, truly. I fully understand that some of these will be heresies that I'm speaking but of course, that's partly the point, isn't it? In effect, the things I'm going to be talking about this afternoon is the beginning of a conversation about renewal of the church, actually. And I certainly don't want to claim that I'm someone who's got a worked out picture of or answers about what renewal of the church in Australia looks like, or what it requires of us, or how we get there. However, I am convinced of this, that reclaiming some sort of distinctive ethic of material life will be a necessary condition for renewal. I'm not saying it's a sufficient condition. I think other things will also be required. However, I do think it will be a necessary condition. But before we can begin such a positive reconstruction, we still have a little bit of clearing of the decks to do. And in particular, if we're going to ask what faithful witness looks like in Australia in the 21st century, we need to get real about the social and cultural location of the church within our times, within Australian society, and what this means for how we think about Christian witness within Australian society. So to that I want to turn to first. So, after more than a millennia and a half of Western culture understanding itself to be Christian, we have now well and truly come to a position where that self understanding has been rejected. Australia is not only one of the most deeply secularised countries in the world, I would argue that it's also an aggressively post Christian culture. Not only does religion generally fit awkwardly into Australian life, I would suggest that there is a particular animus towards Christianity within some segments of our society, particularly amongst a cultural, intellectual and media elite. And partly this is based on a distorted view of Christianity and Christian history, a little bit of which we began to talk about this morning. In, I was up in Queensland last week and went to the medieval fest up on the in the Sunshine Coast hinterland and there was a... a Reenactment battle between the Saracens and the Crusaders, and it's very telling to see who the crowd favourite is. Can you guess who it is these days? It's not the Crusaders. And far be for me to be someone who defends the Crusades. However, you can bet that the view of what the Crusades was, and what its conditions were, and what it was about, is that people have is a very distorted view and bears little relationship to what actually happened. But that said, um, despite such distorted views of Christianity, we also have to admit that there has been a very understandable reaction to the very real failings of the church in our culture, both historical failings and present failings. And in particular, we cannot underestimate how much the revelations about child sexual abuse and it perhaps even more damaging the revelations about subsequent church cover-up have added fuel to this fire. We can't underestimate that. And folks, please don't be fooled by the census figures. So a couple of weeks ago, we had the release of last year's census figures telling us that Australia is a nation with 52% Christian affiliation. And there was much discussion in the media of what that means. And I noticed that there are a number of church leaders going out to the media to use this figure to argue that... And it's hanging on to the idea that the church still represents a major constituency of the Australian public, I think they're kidding themselves. It, it doesn't. People, have, I'm amazed that people keep using the census figures like this because people are not answering that question as a question about religious belief or some sort of spiritual belief. They're answering it as a question of some sort of sense of cultural heritage, actually. Uh, Earlier this year, uh, the market research uh, firm McCrindle brought out some research on faith in Australian society, which I think is much closer to the mark. According to McCrindle, the number of active practices of Christian faith in Australian culture is probably around about 7%. Pretty different figure to 52%. Seems to me to be closer to what we see and experience around us. We need to face up to the fact that the church... No longer has a voice, no longer has a moral voice of weight within within Australian society and culture. Indeed, in some segments of our society, there can be an almost toxic reaction when the church speaks out on an issue. So that same McCrindle research I just mentioned found that the single greatest repellent to investigating Christianity amongst Australians was hearing from public figures who are Christian. That might be church leaders, it might be Christian politicians, or it might be Christian celebrities. To put it another way, we have entered a period when the words of the church and the words of Christians carry very little weight, or in some sectors, even negative weight, perhaps. We can no longer preach to society. So if we're thinking about Christian witness in Australia, we need to start thinking about something else, something much more. And there's no point bemoaning this fact. we need to accept that the social and cultural location of the church today is in many ways much closer to the position of the early church within the Roman Empire. And in fact accepting this fact allows us to be allows us to begin re-engaging the New Testament, more closely from the presuppositions of the New Testament writers themselves. The New Testament was written from an understanding that the community of believers were a marginal fragment of a massive empire that was largely hostile to the central tenets of its faith. Increasingly I think this is our starting position within Australian culture. Now this brings us to a difficult and confronting question. What do we imagine is the Christian task within Australian society? Now traditionally this question has been divided between those who think, uh, have seen the primary task of Christians is to is evangelism and proclaiming the gospel and those who see the primary task of Christian witnesses social justice, uh, establishing a just and fair society. But either way on both sides since the time of Christ Constantine we've presumed that it's Uh, It's part of the church's work in the world to seek the right ordering of society and government, whether that be about establishing it along Christian lines or making it a more just and fair society. And when this is combined with the habits and assumptions of living in a modern liberal democracy and its ideas of citizenship, then we end up being people with a very deep presumption that when and where there are problems in the world we can and should be able to change them, to fix them. We tell our kids this all the time. We say, you can change the world. So when we think about problems such as climate change, poverty and inequality, our immediate response is to want to know how to change it, how to fix it, understandably so. And this leads us to questions of thinking about what will be effective to change it, uh, hopefully as quickly as possible. And that's all very understandable. But when it, as it often does, might begin to seem that some problems are not being solved, that some problems can sometimes seem insoluble, then this becomes a problem. If we need for our motivation to work on issues like poverty, climate change and injustice, the assurance that our actions will somehow be effective, when we're not seeing the evidence of such effectiveness, then that can lead us to a crisis about what we're working for, we can become anxious or distressed and begin to lose hope. And indeed, this is exactly what's happening for a lot of people in the area of climate change. This has become a palpable issue amongst climate change activists and scientists, the question of hope, how to continue to work with hope. So the question about how we seek, go about working for change, whether that be political change or otherwise, is very important. And it's Indeed, one of the questions that's shaped my life. And towards the end of this talk, I'll have a couple of things to say about that how we conceive of thinking about political witness in these times. But for now, we need to realise that these are not the questions, actually, of the New Testament. There was no question in the minds of the apostles and the early church of influencing the policy of the Roman state, it was simply not conceivable. The concerns of the New Testament are of a much more primary order and I think it's these we need to get straight before we can more positively re-engage with the questions of evangelism on one hand and political witness on the other hand. The question is this. From what basis do we have anything to say to Australian society? If we tell people that Jesus can save them from their sins while we continue to binge on disposable consumer goods and while our lifestyles continue to require massive carbon emissions to support them, then there are just too many people today who can see through that, who will not be able to reconcile those two two things. And rightly so. If the Christian voice doesn't speak from deep experience, then, properly speaking, it... Lack substance, or it is a disembodied voice. And as we've been considering this morning, that's not how God speaks. God's word becomes flesh. So, that same McCrindle research I mentioned, which found that the greatest repellent to investigating Christianity was hearing from Christian public figures, also found that the greatest attraction to investigating faith in Australia, investigating Christianity, was. Surprise, surprise, observing people who live out a genuine faith. Of course, we knew this already, folks. We surely don't need market research to tell us this stuff. So what then does becoming, word becoming flesh look like in 21st, 21st century Australia? Or to put it another way, what does good news actually look like? Or to put it another way, what does repentance and discipleship require of us now? Or to put it in even more fundamental terms, what does it look like to be saved by and into Christ? To answer these questions in any way that's more than just a Sunday school truism, we need to do a bit more work naming the shape of our times. We need to understand what is the bad news that the good news speaks into. We need to be clear what we're turning away from when we repent. Fundamentally we need to know what just what Jesus wants to save us from. Now this, this morning we've been naming some of that bad news thinking about the ecological crisis, economic injustice and inequality and the maladies of affluenza. But of course these are the outward manifestations of our sickness. They're not the sickness itself. How do we name that? <clears throat> now There's a great deal we could say uh, entering into cultural analysis. But today there's just three things I want to name. Three core characteristics of our culture. We might even say three core idols. And they are the idols of me, more and mammon. Let's take the first, me. Individualism is the lens really by which we refract almost all life questions now. Whether it be relationships work and vocation, questions of meaning and purpose in life, ethics and even religion. The core question for us is not is what is right or what is just or what should I do or what is good for us. The core question is what does this mean for me? And this runs incredibly deep for us, for us all. I imagine most people here are people who have some sort of critique of individualism. One of the great gifts of spending time in cultures that aren't shaped by individualism like our own is to just see how deep, (coughs) excuse me, how deeply it runs within us. For for Kim and I, spending time in Laos, when we we thought we were people who had a critique of individualism, we learnt just how deeply individualist we are. What does it mean for me? And of course, one of the key shapes, the way that our individualism takes shape this Uh, in this culture is through the question of how am I gratified? The question of more. Consumerism has become the key modes by which we approach so many things in life, the consumption of gratification. And I don't just mean consuming things, and I'm not just talking about uh, shopping. The question of gratification, how does something gratify me? applies to all sorts of things, including, I would argue, things like church and relationships. The question is, is this gratifying for me? And if we can't answer that question, yes, this is gratifying for me, then we find it hard to legitimate uh, any ongoing engagement with, with that. Of course, if we're to pursue me and more in this world, then the other thing we must serve is mammon. It's perhaps the great idol of our time, and we don't have to like the dictates of mammon to feel that it would nevertheless be prudent to follow them. It really is one of the core governing forces of our time dictating uh, the lives of societies, governments and individuals and the whole global community must be ordered around its dictates. So the idols of me, Moore and mammon are some of the core things that are shaping the ill health of our times. And here we're beginning to name the things from which we need to repent. And by that I mean we're starting to name the things that we need to begin to see clearly, to see into. We need to see in our own lives, thanks Jude, how these things separate us from God. We need to be able to see clearly how they separate us from each other and how they separate us from creation. And we need to begin to see clearly how they're directing our lives. <clears throat> but also we need to begin somehow to begin to turn from these things. Following Jesus always requires a turning from something. And as we've been stating this morning, this morning repentance requires reclaiming a vocation of cultural nonconformity, a vocation of resisting the spirit of the age. So what does this mean for us Today, in our time, how do we do this? How do we resist the spirit of of the age? How do we reject the idols of me, Moore and Mammon? Well, today I want to suggest three things to start with, uh, three places to begin. The first is rethinking our whole concept of standard of living. The second is becoming more materialistic. Now, that might sound strange, but I'll explain it when I come to it. The third is beginning to explore, rather than just being economic islands in the world, some forms of economic connection and cooperation with each other. Let's take the first, rethinking standards of living. The big question which all of us in our culture need to think, give great attention to, is the question of how much is enough? Real incomes in Australia have more than doubled since the Second World War, but there's been no appreciable gain in happiness since that time. In 2002, in the halcyon days of our long economic boom and during the Howard years, a survey found that 62% of people felt that they, didn't, and I quote, do not have enough money for everything they really need. 62% of Australians felt they did not have enough money for everything they really need. So how much more would make us happy? Well, it turns out there's an answer to that question. It's about 20%, actually. If you get people to write down in an actual figure, if you think, well, what would be enough for you? Uh, it turns out, on average, it's about 20% of their current income. Now, here's the thing. It doesn't matter where someone sits on the income scale as to how it it turns out to be around about 20% whether you're here or up here. In other words, it's never enough. 20% more is never enough. What we're witnessing is the steady bracket creep of perceptions of what's an acceptable standard of living. Economists and psychologists call this the process of habituation, the process by which we normalise luxury, So things start off as luxuries and then we get more of them, they become normal, and then they just don't become normal, they become basic and even seemingly essential to us. We can see this especially clearly in in the world of technology and the way we uh, consume there. So things that didn't exist 11 years ago, now for so many people seem like, and I hear this again and again, that they could not live without this thing, they have become so core to our lives. Of course this is all risk to the mill of a consumer economy but it's terrible for us and it's terrible for the planet. Let me be so bold to suggest that embodying the good news in Australia requires an embodied rejection of the pursuit of ever increasing material standards of living. We cannot just say that the constant pursuit of more is futile and bad for us. We need to demonstrate it. And we need to demonstrate it with our lives. So this involves particularly choosing a lower material standard of living than is considered the accepted norm in Australia. So of course the end game in this is that we somehow, one way or another, find a way to consume less of the Earth's resources. That's what the planet needs of us all here and now today. That's the end game. And perhaps we can start to do that just by exerting a little bit more self-discipline and not being so uh, run away with our credit cards. Perhaps you could get, get rid of your credit card altogether and swap it for a debit card. Yeah, terrible idea anyway. But we all know that you know just a little bit more discipline is not gonna cut it, really, don't we, if we're honest. There's some more things we can do, some more things that we could suggest, and one of those, uh, a very uh, traditionally Christian place to start is just to think about giving more actually. that would be one way of restraining our consumption in the world. I would be very happy if uh, more Christians just started to take the idea of a tithe, seriously, the idea of giving saying taking ten percent of your gross in coming, saying, Actually, this is not mine, it never was mine to start with. And rather than seeing it as something I'm giving away, something that we never owned to start with. That's not because I have a particular legalistic view of tithing, but I think it's just an excellent benchmark. It's something that is attainable. In fact, it's something that Christians who are far less wealthy than us have been doing for millennia. Yet it's something that bites. And if you've got tithing down pat, then perhaps you can start to explore the New Testament teachings around what we would call almsgiving. That is spontaneous, uncalculated generosity. And uh, there's no limit to what Jesus says about that. That's some of his most challenging teachings. So we can think about giving more. But there's even more that we could do than that. We can start to think about living on a lower income in some sort of vocational way, as even a calling. Now, surely, the, the surest way to begin restraining our consumption is to, begin, is to reduce our means. Most of us live up to our means. I think that's just the reality of who we are. So the less of our means, the less we will consume. That's the surest way to start to begin to learn to live within our limits. Now, in one sense, Christians have been doing this for a long time, as people who have generally been overrepresented in choosing jobs around service and helping others so christians have been for a long time overrepresented whether we're talking about forms of christian ministry or the various forms of helping professions christians have accepted <coughs> lower wages to go into the into this work lower wages than they, they may otherwise have been able to get how It's not always been the case that people have accepted those lower wages or embraced them as something that goes with their service or ministry or felt that good about it. I'm suggesting that we can go a step further and begin to embrace and see it as something, the wage, the income itself, as something vocational. But there's other things that we can do more and more these days as people choosing to work part-time. So choosing to have a lower income to give more time to other things in, in in life. And there's a whole range of things which people are seeking to, to give time to. But of course not everyone can choose to work part time, so there's other things that can be considered. There's the idea of setting income caps, the idea that we name for ourselves actually a number. What do we actually, as an income, what could we live on? And if we start to earn anything more above that, or well, we can just give it away. Now, this is an idea that John Wesley was pretty big on. In fact, he saw it as, uh, in his view, it was fundamental to Christian life, and he spoke about it in some pretty startlingly strong language, actually, to our ears. But it's something that's generally not thought about, setting a, actually naming a level that, that is enough for ourselves. Or if you're a business owner, we can, start, we can start to think a little bit differently about the profitability that we expect from businesses. And that would allow us to think a little bit more different, with a little bit more room to think about how, things such as pricing or staff wages or the environmental sustainability of the business or the quality of the service that's being provided. Now, this stuff is already happening. There are people already making these decisions. We're referred to as downshifters and downscalers in our culture. I know we have some of you amongst us, and this group of people has been studied. Uh, quite well now, and the evidence is pretty clear. People who choose to live on a lower income to give more expression to other life values are people who invariably report a higher sense of well-being, a deeper sense of quality of life. not saying that there are always people who find life uh, like a a Disney movie uh, and everything rosy and happy all the time or everything simple. However, there is a deeper sense of satisfaction, with life. On the other hand, people who, again, the evidence is pretty clear, people who experience a drop in income involuntarily through either uh, forced redundancy or unemployment or sickness, whatever, invariably receive uh, experience, a decline in sense of well-being, a decline in, in quality of life. Now here's a very interesting thing. At a, just a simple numerical and material level, we'll have two groups of people who have gone through the same thing and yet very different life experiences of that. Certainly for Kim and I, since we've been married, we've been married 22 years to the day now, and for all but three years of that, we've been well and truly within the bottom quintile of the Australian income bracket, for most of that time eligible for a uh, Centrelink low-income health care card. And that has not been a hardship for us at all. We never think about uh, that as a hardship. It's been a a blessing to us. What I'm trying to suggest is that there's a multidimensional logic to, to this. The idea of choosing a lowered standard of living is not just something to pursue just because it's the opposite of what mainstream culture, and we're just trying to be the opposite. There's a whole range of reasons in which it can empower and release the choosing of life Our culture needs to see that the rejection of more is not only possible, it's not only an ethical or sustainable thing to do, but it can be good, actually. So the second thing I want to, crazy idea I want to flag with you, is the idea of becoming more materialistic. Now, our problem is not that we place too high a value on things. Indeed, the extreme disposability of our culture suggests that we place very little value on things themselves at all. Rather, the nature of consumer self-gratification is really to consume fleeting experiences, and that's what we use things for, fleeting experiences. As long as they're no... And when they're no good for that, we get rid of them. The The great tragedy of our high consumption lifestyle is that we actually get so little pleasure from the glut of things we cram through our lives on the on the journey towards landfill. And uh, if you want to make a study of this, just look at how our attitudes and our consumption of something like chocolate has changed. Take that as a little bit of homework to think about how chocolate was consumed 20 years ago as to how it's consumed now. So if the movement of our culture is to not really value things but to just see them as opportunities for fleeting experiences, the reverse movement is to become more materialistic, to place a higher value on matter, on stuff, to have a deeper and fuller reverence for the goodness of the good things of creation and a recognition that the things that we consume that come to us from the earth come at a cost. They come at a cost to the earth, and then they come at a cost to other people. They come via somehow being brought to us from the earth's materials and by other people's work. So the journey I'm uh, suggesting that uh, we can begin to take is that what's been described as the journey of responsible consumption, and it's a journey about learning to uh, learning much more about the things that we so far taken for granted. And there's a whole bunch, as has been said, a bunch of resources outside uh, there which can help us on this. It's about learning the backstories to the, the products that we consume, to having a richer view of the materials and understanding of where they come from, how they're made, what's involved in their processes. And often the journey of responsible consumption involves being prepared to pay a higher price for things, paying a higher price for products that were... Uh, produced, with a greater care, produced with a greater care for the earth and produced with a greater care for be- people. So you probably know many of the ways to do that through buying things such as fair trade or organic produce or uh, buying, seeking to buy things that are better quality, that, that have a longer life. I have to admit that so- that's something that came hard to me. I'm a dead set cheapskate that has been through so many lessons of buying something cheap and then just throwing it out before its time was due that of finally starting to come around, still with difficulty to the idea of paying more for something that will be of better quality. The one area where we don't really have to pay more is the whole area of uh, exploring second-hand consumption more. This one, one of the things that we have available to us now, which is relatively new, is a vast way of consuming secondhand goods of all sorts of things, from clothing to technology, cars, you name it. There's many, many things that we can uh, extend their lifespan through secondhand consumption. Or simply to to place a higher value on maintenance service, maintenance and service of the things that we do own. And I know that very often it doesn't make financial sense to do that, to be people who seek to, to fix something. I know that well, and yet that's one set of values. If our our value is to try and give a greater reverence to the actual stuff of the earth, then perhaps that might lead us in a different direction. And finally, being more responsible consumers involves being people who take seriously what happens to something after its life of use is over. To think about waste. And the story of waste, and as much as we can, beginning to close the loop on waste. Becoming people who are much more expert at reducing, reusing and recycling. People who know how to process their own organic waste. Or people who are much better at avoiding single-use plastics. Who here has been watching the War on Waste on ABC? A few people. Good. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend you watch. It's all on ABC's iView. I think it's still up there. Essentially, what I'm talking about is becoming more skillful and better informed consumers. That's more careful in consumers. Keep consumers who take much more care in our acts of consumption. So, in summary, I'm saying I'm not saying that we should give up eating chocolate. Far from it. But I am saying that perhaps we should eat a bit less chocolate and that we choose, begin to choose chocolate that's been made in such a way that shows more care for people and that Stop the Traffickers is, stuff is particularly relevant for chocolate, shows more care for people and shows more care for the earth and to enjoy it more when we do eat it. Let's make it a luxury again. So, I've so far suggested that we can choose a lower material standard of living as a vocation, that we can become people who show a greater care for the material world. Uh, What about the life, the corporate life of our Christian communities? So far, the things I've been describing have really been challenges at the level of personal discipleship or things at the, the level of household economics. And I think that's important because the household is the key locus actually where, in a lot of ways, we enact faith or we deny faith in hundreds of different choices every day. It's the key locus of our use or abuse of the earth and it's the key locus of our economic relationships with others. And also the reality is I think that perhaps many of us are in a position to begin exploring some of this stuff, the question of living differently, we're in a position to begin exploring ahead of perhaps the preparedness of some of our church communities to do so. Sure, the institutional church tends to be a ship that turns slowly. And in this issue, I think, the impetus might need to come from the bottom up to some extent, from the membership of the church. So it's right we think about at the household level. But what might it mean to start to begin to think through what coming back to earth means for how we think about the corporate life of Christian communities, for our life together. Well, I think once we start to open up this, the implications are huge and they're more than can be explored here. But I just want to suggest two things today that apply to the life of Christian communities at the grassroots level. And when I say Christian communities, I'm really referring quite generally to anything from a normal local church to any of the uh, various experiments and improvisations that form sort of part of the Christian landscape these days. So, the first we can do, thing we can do is to think about our Christian communities much more as places of formation in the sort of countercultural resistance that I'm talking about. So, consumer culture is, we all know, such a powerful and all encompassing force that if we're going to try and resist it some way, we need others to help us to do that. We need more than our own personal will and devotion to counter it. So if, as much as we can, if we, think, we can begin to think of our Christian communities, of places where we are being formed, transformed, and are helping us to see through our practices of worship, through our study of the Bible, through our prayer, and through our ongoing fellowship, through the week, uh, that we can begin to see these as places that are helping us to see through the lies of a, our of a culture. And the practical details of translating much of the challenges of discipleship in material life are things that require an ongoing and shared conversation. They can't just be taught. They're not just instructions that we can give to each other. Okay, you need to do this, this and this. These are things that we need to figure out together along the road many of the elements of downshifting to a lower, consumptional, lower consumption lifestyle to more responsible consumption requires a whole bunch of new information and skills turns out as I said last night that living simply can be quite complicated at times so we need each other to be able to do these and when we can begin to share we have communities of shared knowledge this becomes a whole lot easier. This has certainly been our experiences. So Christian communities should be places where we talk about money and finances, where we talk about shopping and waste disposal and eating and gardening. This is the stuff of life. If it's not the stuff of our faith as well then our faith is not dealing with a big part of life. And the reality is most of us learn stuff by seeing others practising them. So I know that's been my experience. Many things which I thought were unattainable or were not something I could do, once I saw someone else do them, actually turned out to be not that big a deal, actually. We learn things by seeing them done by others. But not only can we think about our Christian communities as places where we talk about this stuff, actually we have in church communities often ready-made networks for beginning to experiment with some forms of economic cooperation. Now, I'm not here recommending that we launch into some sort of axe-two experiment, and that everyone sells up and all their goods and tries to form a common purse or something like that. We need to be realistic about what we can achieve uh, to start with, and I think moving too drastically at any point in time can be a negative experience. A great believer in small steps, but there's a whole bunch of things we can do to begin to start making small-scale connections with with each other. For a long time now, for at least 15 years or so, we've been involved in Christian groups that practice cooperative purchasing together. So whether that's been organic food co-ops, as we had in in Footscray when we were there, or as in Bendigo now, we have a a co-op where we purchase fair trade tea and coffee together and organic dry goods. And we get together, we make four times a year, make bulk orders together. We pool our money and order in bulk and we get together at the church and we split up sacks of rice and bags of flour and all sorts of stuff. And uh, It's a bit of a community event, splitting it up. But actually we're all getting something we need that we're getting good stuff at a rate that which... Most of us living on lower incomes can now afford by working together, so not only do we have friendships now together, we have something where we 're helping each other to get something that we all benefit from We need we couldn 't do this alone; we are needing each other for these acts, and that adds a new dimension to our form of community and our fellowship together. Cooperative purchasing is a great place to start uh, or. More limited forms of sharing of some resources, things like uh, trailers, mowers, and whippersnippers are things which do lend themselves more readily to ex- little experiments in community sharing. So again, we've been involved in, in sharing most of these things over some times and it's not always easy and there's new habits and skills we need to learn in sharing these things with others, but it can be done. Finally, I'd like to make a plea for us really to think about the elephant in the room, the area where we need more than the other to think about some forms of economic cooperation amongst ourselves, it's the area of housing. Really there's no single greater obstacle, I think, to exploring the sorts of stuff I'm talking about than the cost of housing in Australia. We all this is something that affects us all. And here we have in in many medium sized churches and up Up, really ready-made networks again where we have mixes of people who are asset rich on the housing rich and others who are struggling on housing we have a situation set up for some fruitful cooperation my plea is for some more kingdom-minded accountants and financial types who can think creatively about how we do this we need more people like Trevor and Jude Thomas, who have made interesting choices and thought creatively around these sorts of things. And we need to be hearing some more of these sorts of stories. That's my plea for some, some form of cooperative action around housing. So in summary, I've been saying that we can work begin the process of working to reject the idols of me, Moore and Mammon by starting to think about choosing a standard of living that is lower than the Australian norm, actually embracing a lower standard of living from what's considered to be the Australian norm. We can start to be people who think much more carefully about the material world and our acts of consumption, and we can start to be people who begin to explore, however small ways, some forms of economic cooperation with each other, some forms of economic uh, connection that go beyond just friendship and choice but by which we actually help each other with things that we need. So what's this all about? I'm going to be in danger of labouring a point here but I think it's an important point so I'll take the risk. I've been talking about embarking on a journey to a lower consumption way of living, and generally this would be understood to be something that's driven by environmental concerns and a concern for serving the ends of social justice. And of course, these two things are indeed very important concerns. However, on their own, if that's all we think, the only way we think about it, suggests that what we're being called to is simply to sacrifice ourselves for others. Now, certainly, the movement towards the sacrifice of self is a central movement of the gospel it's at the very heart of the gospel of what we're being called into nevertheless if we only think about it in those terms and particularly the way we often think about sacrifice then we're in danger of missing a deeper point also if we think about this in there's a danger that if we think about this movement solely in terms of doing the right thing or being more simply being more ethical or more sustainable then we're also in danger of some uh, other things. So, sure, Jesus says uh, that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what is right. That should be something that, that drives us. There can be a danger that if this is the single thing that drives us, that actually what we end up pursuing in the end of being more ethical, more right, more sustainable, is a new form of purity, In some way or another. A new form of pharisaism if you like. That we're becoming people who are seeking to avoid uh, the cleanliness from the taint of the world. And uh, of course that's a movement towards spiritual elitism. And it's a movement that Jesus rejected. I don't think it's any accident that the beatitude that comes after blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness is blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. There's also a danger that what can sometimes begin as a hunger and thirst for what is right can sometimes subtly transmute into a need to be seen as someone who's doing the right thing, need to be seen as someone who's doing the ethical thing or the sustainable thing. Whether that's seen by our peers, uh, need to be seen by our peers as someone like that, perhaps even more subtly sometimes subconsciously we can end up needing God To see us like that. Perhaps sometimes we fall back into the trap of needing to try and win God's favor. These are spiritual traps that we need to be wary of. So, how do we continue to 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 avoid these things? Well, in John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus sums up his whole meaning and purpose in one single pithy statement. He said, I came that they may have life and have it in abundance. The great secret at the heart of the gospel is that what looks like sacrifice from one side, what even looks like death from one side, seen from the other side, once we have passed through it, actually turns out to be life, or the life that really is life, as Paul wrote about it. For whoever seeks to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, we gain it. It really comes down to this. It's a contest of what we really believe is good for us. Do we actually believe deep down that fullness of life lies in the standard of living that is called normal or called average in Australia, but is in reality tragically bloated? Or do we believe that fullness of life lies on a road less travelled? a narrow way that few choose to walk personally i have no doubt about where fullness of lies that it lies with a different choice from the the choice of more that's at the heart of our culture and for this reason i think the rejection of more and me and of mammon is actually perhaps the most evangelical tool that we have at our disposal I think, indeed, that choice of, the, of an alternative mode of material life was actually part of the, the key to the early church's evangelical success within a hostile Roman Empire. We are surrounded by so much bad living that lives lived well really stand out. And sooner or later, they inevitably provoke Questions. And when people ask questions about what they can see happening in our lives, then we're on a different sort of ground, ground when we can begin to speak of faith, not merely in formulas that don't compute for people, but from the honest and gritty stuff of life and the truth about why we do what we do. For so long, there's been such a great chasm fixed in the Christian world between those whose core concern is for social justice and those whose can core concern is for evangelism. I hope that what I'm trying to convey today is that such a distinction is an entirely false distinction. We cannot have one without the other. The good news must be whole, the whole good news or it is not fully good. But, and I'm coming close to my close now, what does this mean for how we think about broader social change? Because that's what's ultimately needed. I've already been saying that seeking to change society is not the first order concern of the church, but rather the church's primary concern is to be itself a kind of countercultural society that is a witness to the kingdom of God, a light on the hill, the leaven in the lump. But this does not mean that Christians should abandon the world of politics and turn inward to focus on themselves. Unlike the early Christians, we do live in a democratic society in which good government is premised on active citizenship. Indeed, I think that this is one of the very positive fruit of Christendom, which I alluded to briefly this morning. Historically speaking, it's a rare and valuable gift to live in a democratic society, and it would be seriously remiss of us not to use it. As tears Renew Our World campaign makes clear there are a host of policy issues, with climate change at the forefront of them, about which we cannot afford to be silent. But here we encounter a host of problems. I don't need to tell anyone here that the quality of democratic debate and legislative deliberation in our political culture has been declining for some time now, and that many feel it to be at an all time low. In many ways it can seem that the structural liberal liberal democratic Politics is beginning to fail. And uh, surely the, the party system has become in a lot of ways both intellectually and morally bankrupt, bankrupt of creative ideas. And debates as they're conducted in politics and society, as and particularly as they're driven in the media, are increasingly debates that drive towards superficiality and division. So what does this mean for how we think about Christian political witness in these times? Well, this is a really big question and I'm not going to answer it today. (laughs) In fact, uh, I think it's one we need to be giving some serious ongoing attention to and I only have the sketchiest beginnings of ideas on the subject. But there's one simple point I want to make in relation to this today. I'm really just wanting to sketch out the landscape of something we need to be thinking about. Uh, My simple point is this. Just like evangelism, a form of... Political witness that has integrity, authenticity, and authority cannot be one that consists merely of words. Political witness, like evangelism, needs to be rooted in and to spring from a way of life. We can see this most clearly in the issue of climate change. For so long in Australia, the single greatest obstacle towards climate change mitigation has it been the objection that the necessary policies are gonna lead to an increased cost of living. And as much as many of the environmental groups and Greens Party have tried to argue that a green economy is gonna replace some of the losses that we encounter from a transition, uh, from decarbonisation of the the economy, it never quite cuts it. And I think, in the end, it is true that the sort of decarbonisation of the economy that we need will require an increase in our cost of living. So when this remains the golden, when a continually rising standard of living remains the golden calf to which the Australian electorate must continually bow, then we have a situation where there is no room for thinking the political thoughts that we need to. But when we've become people who discover through our own lives that actually a lower material standard of living cannot just be chosen, not just simply be survived but actually can turn out to be something that's good for us then we're people who can be have a whole new political perception and that's one thing I think we need in these times people with a new political perception. So in conclusion what I've been endeavouring to suggest today is that Although we are indeed faced with momentous and uncertain and challenging times, the faith that is imparted by the Bible is more than equipped to look into the face of our present darkness and to offer light and hope to the world, to offer light and hope from within its midst. I do not say that if we all just try and be a little bit more faithful then everything will turn out all right. The outcomes of what happens in the 21st century are not in our hands. We have not been called to engineer the outcomes of history but to participate in the kingdom of God and to communicate it to the world. I've been at pains to stress that such communication cannot be accomplished merely by words but requires whole lives. And when I say whole lives, I mean lives in their entirety that is encompassing the whole all the material and immaterial aspects of life, including our words, and I mean lives that are integrated and healthy, holy lives. And as we've been saying, the essential requirement of holiness, of wholeness and health, is a refusal to conform to the lies and the idols of our day. In our time, it is the great idols of me, more and mammon, which are driving the multiple crises of our times. And it's these that we must resist with our lives. Such resistance is not only the right thing to do, the just and ethical thing to do, it is also the most life abundant thing we can do and the most evangelical thing we can do and the most political thing we can do. The mode of living into which we're being called is at one and the same time healing, redemptive, righteous and evangelical. That is, it is simultaneously concerned with our own well-being and wholeness, with broader concerns of ethics and justice, and with the message of hope that we bear for the rest of the world. Of course, when we're talking about the way of Jesus, all these are just think, all these things are just different ways of saying the same thing. And of course, I acknowledge what I've presented here is just the merest outline of a sketch of what coming back to Earth in the 21st century might look like. But what we desperately desperately need are communities of faith where these matters are the subject of ongoing conversations and shared experiments in practice. We need communities that are not put off by the complexity of some issues or the absence of perfect and pure options but are willing at least to try to do the best they can with the information they have and within the constraints that they find themselves it's a movement that must be conceived of a journey taken one step at a time and perhaps going on for the rest of our lives my hope is that our children will be better far better equipped to take up this journey than we currently find ourselves So let me finish today with that great affirmation that occurs at the beginning of John's Gospel and which is the continuing grounds for our hope. What has come into being in Christ is life. And the life was the light of all peoples. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has never overcome it. Amen. We have a few minutes for some questions. You said at one stage that we needed to live this out to be seen, and then you said at another stage we have to be careful about being seen. How would you put those two things together? Yeah, that's (laughs) no, that's and and actually Jesus says the same things if you if you notice. Um, So on one hand he says uh, you need to be a light on a hill and don't put your hide your lamp under the bushel. That's in chapter five of chapter six, he says, uh, don't practice your piety in public. Uh, It's just the wisdom of knowing the difference about why we're doing things. And so if we're we're doing things for the the object purpose of needing to be seen, then we're perhaps doing them for the the wrong motivations. However, if we're doing, if we're seeking to live well in the world, it will be seen. So rather than uh, being into self, I think we need to be careful of self-promotion. That's one of the dangers of, you know, you make some little change in your life and suddenly you promote it out to everyone and tell you, tells the world how, how good. We need to be careful of those temptations. We can do the, this stuff quietly, event, and the, it, it, knowing that eventually it will be seen by someone. That's merely what I'm saying. Housing is a huge one for us in Sydney. And meeting house by a Yeah. Do you want to expand on Well, the honest truth is I wish I had more ideas. Um, Other than saying that I know in in a lot of church communities we have uh, conditions where some people have multiple houses and there are members of those churches really struggling to pay for housing and that perhaps we've got a marriage here within Christian communities. At least this is a place we can start to bring some people together with some thinking about how um, we can support each other uh, so there have been some cases where uh, I know people who have, uh, who are blessed financially, w- well off, uh, or with housing, have helped others buy, go into purchasing housing with others through various arrangements in shared mortgages and things like that, uh, and there have been different ways, or, or providing rent at a lower rate than they could, uh, than they could from market rates to to members of the their community. Uh, Look there to some ideas, but I think this, my hunch is that there's probably some more creative things out there. That um, and I know there's people who have great skills in thinking about how we use money creatively. Uh, unfortunately, not enough of those people with great skills around money are also really kingdom-minded people. Uh, but there are some here today, so I know there's some people who have made some quite interesting choices around around housing. I know Trevor and Jude Thomas have made some uh, uh, in their in their journey some great cooperative uh, choices around housing. So I wish I had more ideas on that and it's more of something of a plea of mine to some people who are a bit smarter and more savvy about that sort of stuff to turn their their mind to it because it's the big issue. It's for us the big issue, I think, cost of housing.